Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? So simple as more space is actually a huge thing. Yeah. I have to apologize for the sound of buzz saws and oh, it's going like, to be what is it's going to be going the whole time I'm talking. What are you doing? Well, um <laughs> you took some trees I down, right? Don't you know that's how it started. Yeah. It started with and actually, you know, it all was a surprise to me basically. Um one we've been talking about taking down all the trees in the front of our house and one day Aaron said they're coming tomorrow to take down the trees and I'm like how much does that cost because you know taking down trees is usually really expensive oh yeah and so he says well he's gonna do everything in the front for whatever it was five thousand dollars yeah and I which is pretty good for more than one tree because one tree we had removed was five thousand dollars at my mom's house well and it's not like they have to extract the whole tree it's just you know just chopping it down like it's not i don't oh. know if it's different when they have to take out the yeah it is. i think it is when they have to take yeah. the stump out the roots and all that yeah okay. yeah so that was fine <laughs> although i did think to myself hmm we have five thousand dollars to spend and this is what we're spending it on sure <laughs> i've been there oh i've been there uh-huh so the morning but i'm letting it go and so yeah. the morning comes and he tells me to go outside so we can talk about the trees and, and, and I, anyway, we, we designate some trees and they're all in the lower part of the front of our house. Yes. You, and, and by the way, for people that don't know, like you have a lot of land for, 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 for not being in the super, super country. You have a lot of yeah. acreage. I mean, you've got a lot of trees. Well, yeah, we have an acre and it's a lot of trees Yes, and it's a lot of junk trees, what they call junk trees. Cause okay. the idea here is, once upon a time when everybody got their heat from wood, you had to have fast growing trees. Oh, so it's these gotcha. tall, skinny Makes trees. Sense. Yeah. Anyway, so I thought we were sort of on the same page about what we were putting <laughs> down. <laughs> this is where I'm getting with this. And I had a couple of meetings yesterday and I was hearing the sound pretty close, but it wasn't until I looked outside that I saw they took everything out the every living thing out in the in the front in front of our house including the only tree i was really attached to was a i have a beautiful lilac tree it well, smells really good did in you the have spring. A, I did. okay oh shit and why they take everything out what's that why they take everything out? Is that the plan? That I, I think I think what happened was <laughs> for the first couple of days the boss was here, and then I think yesterday the boss was like, "You guys just go and finish up." And I don't know that anyway. You know what? I'm just choosing it to be. I'm choosing to look at it like, okay, well, we're getting to start over, and it can be exactly how we want it to be. So that I'm, is that is a great attitude because there's nothing you can do. You really nothing I can do about it. <laughs> absolutely zero you can do about trees coming out. 
Yeah, the only bummer is that it sounds like buzzsaws all day at my house and at my neighbor's house. I'm sure they're annoyed with us too. But well, what you it do? is what it is. Okay, so so uh, okay, the good that's the sort of wonky news. But what the good news is, what are you going to put in? Like, is there going to be a whole new? Oh, no, no, I think it's just going to be grass. I mean, I think it's just going to be grass, okay. which is fine. I mean, my thing was actually it is a little bit of a metaphor because okay. when we first moved here, we loved how quiet and private mm-hmm. everything is. And, and part of why everything feels very private at our house is there's trees and bushes blocking our view of anything. I mean, all we can see is trees and bushes when we're looking right. at the front, which for a while seemed cozy. And then it started to seem like annoying that we yeah. could never see. And actually there's kind of a really beautiful view of the, of mountains behind us. Okay. So, or mountains, hills. Yeah, but I mean, small mountains. like Small mountains. Yeah. Um, so I realized that it does coincide with our psychological spelunking and trying to just be like more open about everything. Like, totally. You know what I mean? Like, let's totally. just be open to people seeing our house and let's just be open to seeing out and let's have and and actually my kids were kind of like oh but it's just all so open and we don't have any privacy and I'm like yeah well you have your room and you have a bathroom I mean there's you there's places to go if you don't want people to to see you but let's just be open about it so anyway there's like a whole yeah it's a great metaphor for being visible like I I am all about lately I have found a lot of um, comfort and refuge in in the truth of the matter, even if it's not pretty, even if I don't actually like it. So like getting the facts of the matter and also sharing the facts of the matter without a judgment. So I appreciate this, like wanting to be seen and And then letting go of what people make of that, whether your house is this way or that way, or the neighbors think this or that. I'm also that I I'm all about it. I'm like, you know, this is, there's something about transparency that's very comforting for me. Mm -hmm. It's also scary because people don't like it when they can see, or or they, they can say whatever they want, but the hiding, I think I'm pretty convinced hiding from myself and from, and, from others uh, leads to trouble. It leads to trouble. And anytime you're having to kind of keep track of what you're, you know, being open about and what you're not, what you've said, you know, it just, it's like, it's, it's, listen, if I only have a certain amount of real estate in my mind, right. I really don't want to allocate any of it to hiding something and trying to remember, right. You know what I need to hide. And, and it's interesting, the more that we do this podcast, the more I see that, like, you know what I thought, Gina? I thought when we're dead, this podcast is going to remain. And then our children's children's children, I mean, I don't have kids, but my nieces and nephew and your children's children's children will have a record of this. And and um, I'd rather it be a record of um, the truth, the truth and transparency than some show about pretending. So I think it's going to be good for them to be able to look back and be like, for me, it's like the, my crazy aunt, like, what was she doing? And what did she think? And, and, oh my God, it's a record of the times too. Yeah. I I think about that kind of a lot. And I think about, um, of course I say all this and my kids are probably like, 
going to have no interest. Right. <laughs> Unless they, until they get to a certain age. I mean, yeah. I'll put it to you this way. If I could listen to a podcast of my mother in her, you know, in the time that I don't really, the time of life, certainly before I was born, but in my life where I still didn't see her as a person. Right. So, you know, I'd love to, you know, just things like what her voice sounded like then. And, right. And that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it I is interesting. Of, I have nothing of my mom. Like we have a very few. It was interesting because we didn't, you know, we, there was not a lot of video of my mother and today is actually the 10th anniversary of her passing. Oh, wow. Wow. That's hard. It is hard. You know, it is hard. And I'm working through, I started therapy with a new therapist, like a regular LCSW lady who's not because my last guy was um, an Orthodox Jewish man who wanted me to have children like it was a whole I just got involved in all the Shannon Degas of like weirdness I attracted that weirdness and whatever but this lady is like a legit you know therapist and um, the only bummer is and I totally understand she's on zoom but like I, I'm so sick of like I would love to be in a room with a therapist but I get it she's in she's an older lady which is also great I've, I'm, I was so sick of having like 28 year old therapists. Yeah. 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 For sure. <laughs> what? That doesn't like, even seem right. Unless no. the clients are like, you know, 15, 17. 17. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, so, um, but all this to say about my mom, I was thinking about it and I think what's harder uh, than Right. My mom's death right now is that there's, I just, you know, this is something I wanted to bring up with you. It's just like, I have a lot of rage that's coming up lately about my childhood and we weren't allowed to feel rage. And my mom was the only one allowed to feel rage. And so this rage mixed with perimenopause slash menopause. I mean, like I still get a period, but like it's a, it's a matter of time before that's over. Um, so, um, but the rage, so I guess, Right. I get, you know, people like to talk about rage as something or anger as something we need to process and we need to do this and that. But the truth of the matter is, since we're being transparent, like rage can be really scary. Like sometimes the rage I feel, it's not like I'm going to do anything wonky, I hope, but it's more like, uh, I don't know what to do with it. That is my, and I was talking in therapy about that. Like, I'm not actually sure practically when the feelings come up what to do with rage. And I feel like it speaks to in our culture of like, we're all about now this sort of like, we talk about this fake positivity and shit like that. And also like embracing all your feelings, but there's not really practical things that we learn what to do when you feel like you're going to take your laptop and literally take it and throw it across the room and then go to jail. Like you, you, so I have to like, look up things on the internet with literally like what to do with my rage. I think that's what, that's part of my attraction to reality television shows mm -hmm. is, is a performance of rage. That's um, that I wouldn't do just because I don't think I could tolerate the consequences. Um, I mean, an upwards interpretation is, Oh, it's not my value, but, it's really just like, I don't think I can manage the, con the consequences That's where of, I'm totally at. of having all these blown up, you know, and people things. mad at me and yeah, legal consequences. Is, I can't. Right. It's something very gratifying about watching people just give in to all of their rage <laughs> impulses. And it's, yeah, I, it, 
it's it may be particularly true for women, but I think it's really just true for everybody that there's very few acceptable rage outlets. Although I guess actually maybe sports. Well, but when yeah. it turns when it turns sideways, then that's also not acceptable. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's why I love all this true crime is like these people act out their rage, but like lately to be honest the true crime hasn't been doing it for me it's interesting um that is interesting yeah it's sort of like well i've watched so much of it that like now i'm watching stuff in different languages <laughs> true crime in spanish <laughs> and true crime stories I was I, oh sorry good no no just stories i haven't all the only stories that i haven't heard really really are the ones from other countries now so i'm watching like like true crime in new in delhi i you need your fix. I actually was listening this some podcast that I listened to. There's always an ad, that, and it's exactly about this. It's like we love true crime, but we've heard every story. We yeah. know about every grisly murder. We know every detail, and it was touting itself as a podcast of for. And if next time I listen to it, I'll note the name of it so I can share it with you. About you know about the crimes you haven't heard about. But see, the thing is, a lot of them now, and I'm because I'm becoming more of a connoisseur. Like a lot of it is just shittily made. So like the the they're subtitled and dubbed in India, like India. So you've got like uh, the the they're speaking another language, and then they're and and it, they don't match. So then I'm like, well, who's right? Like, is it the dubbing that's right or the subtitles that are right? And and actually, the words matter because I'm a writer. So it's like one. Anyway, it's poorly done is what I'm saying in my mind. And so I'm sort of scra- scraping the bottle of the barrel. It's like Delhi 911. I swear to God, that's what it's called. <laughs> and, I, and, it's, and also there, it's, it's horrifying because, the, the, you know, the legal systems everywhere are fucked. But India has quite a system. Getting back to the rage of okay, it all, yeah. like, tell me more about what comes up for you with rage and well, where you can phys- put it. Yeah, okay, so some of it is physiological, like where I feel literally like, and I think this is what my doctor is talking about, the menopause symptoms. I literally feel like uh, gnashing my teeth. Like I feel a tenseness in my jaw. Like that's literally that. And she's like, that could also be your heart medication. So talk to your heart doctor. I mean, we're checking out all the things, but like, but it's tension. That's what it really feels like in my body is like tight tension where I feel uh, like that. If I had to put a sound effect to it, it's like, uh. so I, I feel that is the first symptom of my rage. And then I feel like, um, and, and I say out loud, sometimes I just hate my life. That's what I say. And that is something I have never allowed myself to say before. Like I, I think unconsciously I always told myself like you just you have to be grateful and you know those are the messages we receive but sometimes life just fucking sucks and sometimes my life I just I I just can't stand and and in moments you know but I never allowed myself so it's mostly a physical symptom followed by this is intolerable what someone is doing sometimes my dog or my husband but even even at the co-working space you know like the lady was talking too loud and I was like, Oh my God, this is intolerable. She has to shut up. So, uh, agitation, that's what it is. And, and then it passes when I, 
if I, if I can say, oh my gosh, I am so freaking enraged right now, then it passes. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of sounds like from, from you and probably for most people, the only real option is to turn it in on yourself, <laughs> you know, right. like you're not going to put it elsewhere. So you've, you know, you have, which is, uh, so I guess maybe it's okay if you turn it on yourself, if you're doing, if you're working, if you're doing it with acceptance, which is the thing I'm right. gathering from you as right. opposed to stewing and festering. And then- yeah, I have, I mean, it becomes, it's interesting. Yes. It is so, um, it's like a so red hot and so sudden almost that the only thing I can do is say, okay, this is actually happening. Like I can't pretend this isn't happening. I, I'm like physically clenching my fists and then I, yeah, there is a level of acceptance. I don't get panicked anymore now that I, that something is wrong. I just say, oh, this is rage. I name it. I'm like, I feel enraged and white hot rage. And then it, and then it, and then I say, that's what this is. I don't know why. I don't know where it's coming from right in this moment. It's not proportionate to the lady, like literally talking on the phone at the, my co-working space that she's not shouting. So it's not that. And I don't want to miss And I'm not like, I can't fool myself to think that's really that lady's problem that I feel like throwing my laptop at her head. <laughs> and then, and then it passes, but, but, but it is, it is more and more. And, and I think a lot of it, not a lot of it, but you know, a doctor really does think that it's, it's hormonal. A lot of it yeah. which doesn't yeah. help the matter. I mean, it, it's not like, right. Oh, great. It's hormonal. I'm, it, everything's fine, but it, it does help to make me feel a little less bonkers. Maybe you should have like a, a whole rage. Um, like what? Like a rage. Well, at first I was thinking you should have a rage outfit. Like, oh, for yes. me, if I, so I notice I, in the winter anyway, I pick like my meanest boots and my yes. leather jacket when I'm feeling, you know, yes. angry. Maybe so. Maybe you have a rage outfit. Wait, did okay. you pierce your nose? No, I, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I scratched myself in my sleep. Oh, oh it's okay. blood. It no, it's okay. Cool. It happens all the time. I do it in my sleep. It's a thing that it's like a little oh. uh, skin tag that I need to get removed. It's oh, okay. Okay. No. So you could have a rage outfit and then you could have a rage playlist. Mm. And then you might even have like rage props. I'm just yes. trying to think about a way that you're, you, yes. you could right because if, if how like, you process something is artistically creatively, then maybe you need a creative outlet that's specifically for, for rage. Yeah. And you know, the, I, I love that. And now I'm thinking about like, as a kid, we, because we, anger was so off limits to us. I used to violently chew gum. Like I would chew on the gum. That was a way. And my mom did the same thing. Uh, even though she also got her rage out, but she, I, it, it was like, you know, when people violently chew on their gum, like that was a way I could get my aggression out. That's so sad that that's like the only way. Well, I mean, you find it wherever you can find I me. Mean, it's, it, it's like water looking for right. uh, whatever right. that expression is. Right. Yeah. Huh? Well, I have to get more in touch with my rage because I, I'm told that I seem angry a lot. You do? And- you are? I, 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 I do get told that, um, oh. but, but that 
sucks for me because I feel like I'm not expressing my anger and I'm, but I'm not, so I'm not, and I'm being seen as angry at certain times. So that means I didn't even get the benefit of like letting out the anger that somebody is. Right. You You didn't even get to act out the anger. It's like, yeah. So for me, Miles tells me that all the time. Like, he's like, you, you seem really in a couples therapy. Also, I have to admit, yesterday was a big day. We had couples therapy on Zoom. Then I had individual therapy on oh, Zoom. Yeah, and in between, I had all kinds of, like, just stuff happening. So, um, but yeah, I'm told I'm ang- Miles is like, you seem so angry. And he's not wrong. And uh, and we take it out on the people that we live in a two-by-four apartment with. So, yeah. so um, I also feel like this office space is helping with that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to have to keep exploring my, my rage and that's what it is. And also it is like, I am the character in where the wild things are. That kid, that is what I feel like. Hmm. And it feels, it's like the perfect, cause he wants to gnash his teeth and, um, and he does and uh, thrash. I will thrash, thrash and gnash are the words. And I said, my Hey, let me run this by you. I have a let me run this by you that I wanted to do when, when we we're going to talk to Molly that we didn't get to do. And it was based on um, made, you know, and just about money and, and wondering like what your relationship is right now with money. And also, but when were you at your lowest with money what do you remember as being your lowest moment sure sure with money with money okay i have moments of what first comes to mind was when right i was at depaul so it's apropos in college and um there was obviously a sense i had a sense of lack always even though based on whatever but it was phone, um, somehow my accounts were always negative, right? Like, and I would call the number, the banking number incessantly to check and it would always be negative. So I had this panic thoughts about that, like being a time of like, and that's not the only time that happened like that, where, what is the feeling? The feeling was that, and this was in college where it started to happen, where I felt like, there's never enough. No one's going to help me. I'm irresponsible with money was the message I told myself. And I probably was, I was in college, but I can't handle money. And literally that, that panic was also, I mean, it was true. I had no money, but my parents would have backed me, probably helped me out, but I was too scared to ask for help. So that's like, that's when, when you ask that question, that's where I go. But, but that's also a college kind of me. So like in terms of an adult me, that's a really great, great question. My lowest, I don't know. What about you? Well, I've had a lot of low mo- <laughs> low moments with money. <clears throat> um, when I was in high school, the thing was I lost my wallet all the time. 
Oh, I remember this. I remember you talking about college. Yeah. yeah. I used to lose stuff all the time. Um, that actually started at a young age with, you know, my mom would buy, my mom is really into jewelry and she would buy me this jewelry and there's nothing wrong with the fact that she brought me jewelry, but I lost it. You know, she buy me nice gold jewelry. Yes. She was, she likes nice things. That's right. Yeah. Um, in college it was pretty bad. And the first time it was pretty bad, I had to move back in with my mom because I couldn't afford rent. And then the second time I just, I, I really, (laughs) if I had more bravery, I probably would have signed up to be one of those girls in the back of the Chicago reader. Like I, I, I just figured what, literally how else, because I had a job, but I only worked however much I could work given the fact that we were in rehearsals and like busy all day. So I I never could make enough money. Um, And then I just, I think I always have had a dysfunctional relationship with money. Wait a minute, but I have to interrupt. Why, why didn't our parents fucking help us? Okay. Look, I know I sound like a spoiled asshole brat, but like when I think of the anxiety that we were going through and I know your mom did, so I'm not going to talk shit about your mom or anything, but I'm just saying like, why did we feel so alone in this when we were so young? This is not right. Yeah. Well, my mom did help me out uh, as much as she possibly could, but, um, I think part of it too, my dad certainly didn't. I think it was that, um, I mean, when my mom was 18 and my dad was 19, they bought a house and had a baby. So I think part of it is, has been like, what's the matter with you? (laughs) Cause they didn't go to college, you know, that's the other thing. Um, so, so then when I then I had a period for like 10 years where I always had three jobs me too um well, so did you I, have enough then I mean like could you make rent I had enough okay. I had enough then yeah I had enough then but then when Aaron decided he wanted to go to medical school uh it was really on me to to bring in the income I mean his parents always gave him money. Of course, they helped. It yeah. was a lot more reliant on me. And actually, it's why he became a therapist. Because I thought, well, we're going to be living with no income because he's going to be a student. Right. So Holy I better shit. giddy up and get a job. So the whole time I was in social work school, I was bartending. I remember but, that. And then I went quickly into private practice um, so that I could make money. And it turned out to be it turned out to backfire on me. Tell me, tell me, tell me more. It backfired in two ways. Number one, I was, I shouldn't have been operating a private practice without my LCSW. I had my MSW and I was working at the time in a psych hospital and all the psychiatrists said, you should start your private practice. You should start your private practice. And I remember saying at the beginning, I don't know if I'm allowed to. Oh, yes, yes, you definitely can. I know tons of MSWs. I know plenty of people. And it's true. I don't know if it's still true now in New York, but at that time, you could walk around and see plenty of nameplates for offices where somebody's in private practice and they just have an MSW. They just had to have a supervisor or something? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Right. All right. Um. So that ended up coming to haunt me when a disgruntled patient, and they're all disgruntled in some way, um, 
a, a family who actually had been swindled by a con artist. Like they, they were a blue blood, rich ass family and they got swindled by a con artist. And so they were talking about rage. They had a lot of rage about that. Um, when this guy who was paying for his daughter's treatment didn't think it was going where, you know, he wanted it to. Right. He started pushing back about the fee and then he was submitting to his insurance company and they were not reimbursing uh, because I didn't have the LCSW. So then he reported me to the New York state um, office of professional discipline or New York whatever. State. Yeah. Regulation or whatever. Yeah. And I, ha I had to go through a whole thing. I had to have a lawyer and I had to go. Yeah. Yeah. It was a nightmare. It was a complete and total nightmare. And I, and I said nothing, but like, yeah, I did that. I did do that. And I did it because I needed to make the money. I mean, in some ways I don't regret it because I yeah. did, it worked for the time that it worked. And right. then by the time it stopped working, I was ready to leave private practice anyway. Oh my God. Yeah. But then it also backfired because we were taking in this money, which we desperately needed living in New York city with two kids. Yeah. Um, and, and we were, we were spending it all and not hold withholding any for, for taxes. taxes. Yeah. So then that Classic. started, that started a, hmm, that started an almost 10 year saga of just, taxes. I, I mean, I, 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 it's embarrassing to even say how much money we've paid in, sure. just in fees, compounded sure. fees. No. I'm yeah. sure in the last 10 years, we've given the government a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that sounds, that sounds <laughs> about right. And, you know, I think the thing with money too, is the amount of forgiveness I've need to muster up for the financial decisions that I have made. So one of them that I'm super embarrassed about is that, um, and I, and I hear you when it's like, yeah, I, it, it's embarrassing. I, 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 when I did my solo show, I inherited the year that my mom died. My great aunt also died who I very barely knew. And I inherited like, like a lot of money. Well, to me a lot, like 50 grand from her. And I spent 15,000 on a publicist for my solo show that did nothing. So I was swindled. Oh, yeah. I'm so, so sorry to hear that. I like, really did nothing. I, I, I could have done it all on my own. I could have done it all on my own on drugs in a coma. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, come on. So, so I have done, made some questionable decisions. Um, I did the best. We did the best we could with, with the information that we all had at the time. I would never make them that decision. I would, I will never make that mistake again. So yeah. money is a very, very obviously this is so like kind of obvious to say, but it is, it, it is so, um, it is a way in which we really, really use it to either prize or shame ourselves. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. and I do it either way. Like I do it. Oh, I'm so fancy. I inherited this dough. And then I also do it. It's that thing that they talk about in program, which is like, you're the worm, but you're the best worm. You're, you're the, the special pie, worm. Special yeah. worm. And like, you're not a worker among workers. I'm just like the best idiot out there. It's like, <laughs> Oh Dude, yeah. and, and you're making me realize that um, money might be the only 
very quantifiable way of understanding your psychology. Money is like understanding your psychology through math. <laughs> it's going, okay, if you're a person like me who gets offered a credit card at age 20 oh, and yeah. signs up and and immediately maxes it out at whatever it was like a 27 percent interest rate so what whatever little thousand dollars of clothes i got i probably paid ten thousand dollars for it and for the longest time so so that's me being afraid of the truth of my financial situation uh being unwilling to sacrifice having you know, whatever cute clothes, Me too. um, being about the immediate gratification of it all and not thinking long-term. And, yeah. Good. Well, not asking for help either. Like, like, but I don't know who I'd ask, but someone had to know more than me. I didn't ask my parents. They didn't really know what was happening or that just was their generation of like not teaching us about money. It was sort of like, good luck, get it together. We got it together. You get it together. Okay, fine. But like unwillingness and fear to ask to be taught something about money. Like I, I didn't know jack shit about credit or interest. Jack shit. Yeah. And I recently realized that I'm basically redoing that with my kids because we supposedly have this allowance. Only one of my kids ever remembers to ask for it because you know, only one of my kids is very, you know, very interested in money. Sure. <laughs> the other, but like, in a way, I can understand why the others don't because it's like, well, anytime they want something, I pay for it. I never say. Sometimes I'll say. Some I, recently, I've gotten better about saying, if we're going to go back to school shopping, I'll especially with the oldest one, I'll say, this is your budget. If you if you spend it all on one pair of sneakers, then I hope you're okay with your sweatpants that don't fit and wear them every day for the rest yeah. of the school year. Right. Um, but it's we've we've just been extremely inconsistent in tying, like for example, chores to Correct. your allowance. I mean, it's fucking miserable and hard, and I have trouble doing that for myself. I wouldn't be able to do that for my children. If I had children, I can't not give the dog people food. What, what are you talking about? How right. am I going to raise it? It doesn't shock me. We didn't learn the skills and I'm not blaming. I mean, I'm blaming of course my parents, but I'm also just saying it's just the facts. If we're going to be the, in the truth, like I didn't learn, I didn't educate myself and nobody educated me. So I'm really learning through trial and error, mostly error, how to be okay with money. And it, it is, you're right. Like finances, romance and finance teach us the most about our psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Romance and finance. I love that. Did, did, did you did not just make that, that? My boss at Lutheran social services okay. used to say all the time, finance and romance, romance and finance. That's what all these addictions are about is that's how you totally. see them. And I'm like, she's right. I mean, she was, I liked her. She was bonkers, but I liked her. She said some good, she, she also was famous for saying, and she didn't say it, but she would always quote that no one gets out of here alive. You know, mm -hmm. she'd be like, well, none of us are getting out of here alive. We might as well start living. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, very true. So, Today on the podcast, we are talking to Carol Schweid, an original cast member of the original production of A Chorus Line on Broadway. She's got great stories to tell. She's a fascinating person. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with Carol Schweid. 
or Rainbow Over like Starbucks. Exactly. Carol Schwein, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. You did. And where did you go to theater school? Okay. First of all, let me just take my coffee, my extra coffee off of the stove and put it on my table because it's going to burn. Give me right back. We don't want that. Okay, here I am looking for a cop. You think I'd have one, right? I know this is ridiculous, but here it goes. Okay. Hi there. Hi. Hi. I've, this is a riot that you talk about surviving theater school. I think it's great. <laughs> okay, so this is working, right? You can hear me. Yeah, oh, totally. Yep, we can hear 100%. You. So this is my, all right. Um, I started college at Boston University. Um, I was an acting major, which I loved. I really did. But I, what I loved more than anything was I loved the history of the theater. We had a great professor who told the tales of the gladiators and the, you know, the gladiators on the island and the fighting and then the island, the survivors, and then the island would slowly sink into the water. <laughs> um, Wait, I mean, what, what is this? Where, what did I miss? That was the early history of the theater. It was starting on the church steps. It was, you know, the second, whatever all of that history was, I found it really interesting. I also loved uh, the stage and shop crew stuff. I liked learning about lighting. Um, I was terrible at it. I, you know, I would fall off ladder, but I, I, I enjoyed the backstage stuff as much as I enjoy. I just, I liked it. I, I we did, um, <sighs> the rose tattoo and my, and my first job was to take care of the goat. <laughs> I was on the prop crew. I took care of the yeah, goat. Was it, was it a stuffed goat? No, it was a real goat. Wow. Um, what can I what? tell you? The Rose Tattoo, there's a goat in the play. Right. I, I didn't realize you could have livestock in colleges. Well, That's college. Whatever. It was, I look like I have jaundice. With this. Something's wrong with the light. You don't. But since you stopped, you're, where is the microphone part of your... Um, Do you want me to hold it up better? Yeah, because yeah. when you move, it hits your shirt and it makes like a scratching Right. Noise. That's right. Yeah. I'll do it this yeah. way. I won't move you around. You just look so really much. tan. You look tan. You look yeah, nice. you don't look jaundice at all. Okay. Well, then that's... All right. Good. Uh, <laughs> um, thanks. So you were the goat handler. Um, it's good to talk to you. I mean, that, that was, and, and I didn't mind, I didn't mind being an usher, all of those things. You know, I remember somebody sitting us down and saying, you're, you are the first person the audience will meet tonight as an usher. I oh, took all of this good, stuff good to heart. I, I, I did. But the acting business was very confusing to me. I, I didn't quite, now I, I had st- done a lot of theater and studied dancing and been in the shows and stuff. But I, I really, I was a little more of a dancer than an actor. I'd taken class in the city. I'd followed some cute guy from summer camp to his acting class. But half the time, I honestly didn't understand a word anybody said. I just, <laughs> nobody does. I, 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 I really didn't get it so much yeah. of the time. I, I, I loved it, but I didn't always get it. And for some reason, and I have no idea where this, why this happened, I had a boyfriend in Summerstock whose mother worked at Barnard and her best friend was a woman named Martha Hill. Martha Hill ran the dance department at a school called Juilliard. Oh, I had no idea. A little school, just a little nothing school. Well, this is back in the day. It's a long time ago. It was just a plain old school. It it wasn't like a school. 
you know, where you bow down. Right. And um, I really was a very good dancer and always loved dancing. You know, I've been dancing since I'm like a kid, little five or six or whatever. So um, I was a little disenchanted with my successes at Boston U. Even though I had friends, I was having a great time. I mean, Boston in the late 60s was amazingly fun. But I felt like I wasn't getting it. I mean, it wasn't a school that was cutting people, thank God, because that would have been torture. I don't know how anybody survives that. But I auditioned for this dance department in this school called Juilliard and got in. Mm -hmm. And then told my parents that I was going to change colleges. Um, um, I remember making up a dance in the basement of my dorm in Boston because you had to sort of take class and then you had to show something that you sure. had made up. And um, somebody else from college was leaving school to come to New York to be a singer. So we decided we were going to be roommates. And then we had a summer stock. Somebody at BU started some summer theater. So I had a job or two. I think I had some friends from there. So I ended up moving, changing colleges and going to Juilliard. And um, I spent three years there. I was a modern dancer major. So we had the Limon Company, including Jose Limon wow. as teachers and the Graham Company. I mean, Martha Graham, Martha Graham did not teach, but her company did, Ethel Winter. And um, uh, Helen, I was Helen McGee, one of the, they, they were maniacs. I mean, they're, they're like gods and goddesses. Their whole life is about dance. And I was one of those demonstrators for her eight o'clock beginning class, my third year of school. I mean, I, it was all about technique. We had amazing ballet teachers. We had Fiorella Keene, who, I mean, Anthony Tudor taught class there. And he, and he was Anthony. I mean, so I got a technique out of being at that school that I have never lost. I mean, I can, I'm making up dances for high school kids now. Really? I, I'm just finishing up a production of Grease, which is really kind of boring, but whatever. No, I like Grease. Tell really? me more. Tell me more. Yeah, you know it's I mean? okay. <laughs> if you hear it enough, you really get sick of it. Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, high school kids doing high school kids is like, Jesus, God, you just want to slit your throat. Um, yeah. The moodiness when it comes to the girls. I mean, I love them. I really love them. And I love the guys because they're like puppies. They fall all over each other and they're fabulous. But that's a lot. It's a yeah. Lot. Hmm. yeah. Anyway, so I did something that I don't know why I did it and how it worked out that way. I left. I had a very best friend in college that was, you know, and I came to New York and made made and shared an apartment with this slightly crazy woman and a year later i got myself a studio apartment on west end avenue and 71st street wow. and uh, my mom co-signed the lease and um i spent three years dancing honestly dancing almost every day um i wanted to take sight singing but they wouldn't let me because i was in the dance department and i didn't know you could advocate for that Sure. I didn't know you could take classes at Columbia. I mean, who had time anyway? But um, it was, was it a three-year program at Juilliard? It was a four-year program. But I had taken a music class at BU that was like Music Appreciation One. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they gave me credit for that. Oh. So I a had, whole year credit. Yep. Oh. So three years at Juilliard where I really worked my tail off. 
what's weird about it is that I am, you know, just a plain old Jewish girl from New Jersey, you know, a middle-class Jewish girl. From, and to, to think that I could have a profession where people don't talk and don't eat, which is what dancers <laughs> do, um, is a riot to me. <laughs> yeah. It's an absolute riot because, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that should be basically the manual for dancers. Don't talk, don't eat. Don't eat. Um, but I always knew that I was heading to Broadway. I really have always wanted to do that. And I and and was not really ever in question that I would. I somehow assumed if I worked hard and figured it out enough, I would find my way to working on Broadway. And I, and I made the right choice in the sense of switching colleges because in the 70s, if you look at your list of Broadway shows, all the directors were choreographers. They were all dancers, oh, right, right, all right, of right, them. Right. Uh, Fosse, Michael Bennett, yeah. our champion, all of them. So I started working when I got, got out of school. You know, it was, a, and I had already done a couple of summers of summer stock and I did a summer Bushkill pencil, you know, these ridiculous, stupid theaters all over, but it was a blast. It was fun. Where, what, what was your first job out of school? Um, I was still, I was in school. And it was the Mount Southington Playhouse, which was like a tin shell in Connecticut. And I think I was still in college because two guys from school had opened the theater at the skiing place. But it wasn't skiing then. It was, a sh it was like a tin shell. So you couldn't really do a show when it was raining very well. And I believe it was Stop the World. I want to get off. Yeah. yeah. And I can still remember the alto harmony to oh. some of the songs. Wow. How so cool. you okay wait so you don't consider you didn't consider yourself a an actor or did you well i did but i think what happened was i had auditioned for something at bu like they had grad programs and it wasn't that i was unsuccessful there but somebody and i didn't get cast i didn't get hired and i didn't understand you know, like they give you all these acting exercises. We do sense memory. Well, I didn't know they were exercises. I, I didn't, they were, they're like plies, right? They're like learning things. Oh. I, I took this all very seriously. I would stand oh. in a room and try to feel, it was like that song from Chorus Line, you know, yeah. try to I feel the motion, feel the heat. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. I did all of that. I didn't really understand the simple, what am I want here and what's in my way of trying to get it? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it took me so long to find teachers that I really could understand and make me a better actor. So when did you find them? When did you start to find them? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I found a couple of good teachers in New York. I mean, honestly, there was a woman named Mary Tarsai who had been in the group theater. Wow. It was an older lady. I mean, this is a long time ago anyway, uh, or, you know, but I remember sitting in her class and she would talk about using imagery and thing, and I started to sort of understand a little bit, which is amazing to me because after I moved to Westport and I met, do you know the name Phoebe Brand? Yeah. yeah. Phoebe Brand was in our theater workshop oh, and okay. taught a class. She was already up in her 80s. And she taught a class, a Shakespeare class on Sunday mornings. And all of a sudden, these things that I didn't understand from decades before hmm. 
it sort of pulled it all together. But for me, I, I went out, I was in California after I got married and moved to LA for a couple of years, found a teacher named John Len, L-E-H-N-E, and two years in his class, I started to really understand how to do it. And then when I came back to New York, he sent me to Michael Howard. And Michael so Howard, is, Michael Howard that, was a great teacher for me. He's still a great, I don't know if he, he's still around, if he's teaching or not, but he was a wonderful teacher. And I started to understand how to do it. Was Len the, uh, did he teach the method or what was? Yes. Okay. He was, he was an actor studio teacher. And I started to un understand about being present on the stage and being able to deal with people, all of it, it just changed dramatically. I mean, I started to understand what this was about and seeing other good actors and chipping away at it and finding people to rehearse with. And But Carol, you, you, from what I know and what I'm gathering is that once you graduated Juilliard, you were cast in New York. Well, you know, I did get my very, my very, I mean, I, I, I remember going to see Midnight Cowboy, mm -hmm. which was about the same time as I got out of college. And I remember going into a terrible panic of, oh my God, I mean, really scared about all of it. And um, I, I went, I joined a class that a friend of mine, somebody told me about this class. You know, I always follow somebody to a class. I'm always, I have good friends and I, somebody says, oh, I love this guy, come to class. And I'd show up. And this was a musical comedy singing class, kind of, where there were writers in the class and actors in the class. And the writers in the class would work on a musical that they didn't have permission for. It wasn't like they were, we were doing this for money or for, for future. So my friend who I became friends with um, wrote her musical version of Barefoot in the Park. And um, which has never been done, but I remember I was in it and this guy was in it. And we, it was the kind of a class where it was a very warm, yeah, funny group, funny group of wacko theater people. And um, I would go to open calls and I'd usually go to open dance calls because that was a door for me. And also I used to have to sneak out of, not sneak necessarily, but essentially sneak out to take my singing lessons. And I took singing lessons every, you know, every week for years, for three years, I would, you know, and, and I was not really, I don't think a very good singer, but I became a good singer. I would sneak out of school and go to an acting class. I don't even know when I started that, but I know that I would find the time to do it and then talk about acting and find a teacher so that, when I would audition for a musical and I would get through the dancing, usually if I got through the first cut, I would make it to the end. I wouldn't always get the job, but if I made it through that first horrible random cut, you know, where there's 200 people and you're yeah. dancing across the stage and it's oh yes, God. no, yes, no. Is it really, was it really, see, cause I'm not a dancer. So I've never had this, I, when my agents are like, oh, there's an open dance call. I'm like, uh, that's, you sent the wrong person the email. So it's really like that. Like in, in chorus line where they say, you know, you, yeah. Oh yeah. It's like all that oh, jazz. Oh, it's really like that. Um, Wait, I have a question. I want to hear the, the rest of that, but I, I, I just, I've never asked anybody. It, uh, what 
what's the biggest difference between the people who got cut immediately? I mean, was it training or were there people that, in other words, were there people who were just walking in off the street with no training trying to audition? Yeah. Was no. it like truly an open call? Oh, okay. No. And okay. sometimes <laughs> these were equity calls because I, I, I did get my equity card on a summer the one summer I worked for a non-union, you know, we were in either Bushkill, Pennsylvania or Southington, Connecticut, or I did a couple of those summers. And then the next summer, the choreographer from that show had an equity job and he hired like three of us from our non-union summer stock because we were good enough. And, um, that's so it. when you went to these open calls, everyone there was a badass dancer. No one there was like no, me. Like, that's not true. Like that's not true. There were all okay. different levels of dancers, but it was okay. also a look, a weight. You know, it was always, I was always like right. seven pounds overweight. It was like the torturous thing of weight, just enough to put anybody over the edge. Did they literally weigh you, Carol? Oh, God, no. Oh, okay. But it's a look. And I will okay. tell you, there's one... There was one time when I remember auditioning for a Bob Fosse show and there were a lot of people on the stage and we were whatever we were doing. And then at one point, three Fosse dancers, it was their turn. And these three gals, okay, their hair was perfect. Their makeup was fabulous. They had a little necklace. They had a black leotards, you know, cut up high, but not out of control good tights, no, no runs, nice shoes, nails done. And they were fantastic. They were clean. They were technically, and we all sort of went, oh, fuck. Right. Right. And I have friends who became Fosse dancers. I mean, I worked for Bob, but I have friends who did a lot of shows with him. And they had that same experience where they saw other people the way it should be. And then they would go back a month later and get the job because uh, they knew what it took. It was all about uh, knowing what it takes. But the thing about having studied acting and having really studied singing is that in the world of musical theater, I was ahead of the game because there's not that much time. So you have to be willing to spend all of your time. Right. So there are some people, I'm assuming, Carol, that could dance wonderfully, but couldn't do the singing and the acting part. And that's where you were like, that's the triple threatness of it all is like, you could do those things. Well, I could do them better than a lot of people. And I certainly could sing well. And I had, I could sing a short song. And I knew that you sing a short song. I knew that you'd probably do an up-tempo, you know, and also I tend to be a little angry when I go into an audition. It's like, why the fuck do I have to audition? I better, so I needed to find things that allowed me to be a little angry so I could be myself. And I could also be a little funny if I could figure out how to do that. So all of these things worked in my favor. And then of course, like everybody else and a lot of people, Pat Birch, who was a choreographer. She had like a gazillion shows running, including Greece on Broadway and no, over here. I don't know if she did Greece, but she did over here. She did. She was a very prolific choreographer. She had been a Martha Graham dancer and she had taught a couple of classes at Juilliard. And when it came to my auditioning for her, she needed girls who could dance like boys. She didn't need 
tall, leggy chorus girls. We were doing, there were her, the show she was working on was a show called Minnie's Boys. And it was a show about the Marx Brothers. And the last number of the show, we were all, the whole chorus was dressed up like different Marx Brothers. And she needed girls who could be low to the ground, who could, who could turn, who could. Yeah. And I was the right person. And I remember being in that class, that wonderful musical theater class with a teacher named uh, Mervyn Nelson, who was just a great older guy who kind of worked in the business. I remember I had to go to my callback. I went to my class and the callback was at night. And I remember him walking me to the door, putting his arm around me and saying, go get the job. And if you don't get this one, we'll get you the next one. Oh, that makes me want to cry. Well, it made me feel like part of the family because we all want to be part of that theater family. And so I tend to do that when I'm with an actor who's going to go get a job or go get, you know, you, it's the possibility. You want to feel like it's possible. Yeah. You feel like you can, you, you deserve it maybe. So t you said you mentioned briefly that you worked for Bob Fosse. I did. Tell I did. us about it. Oh my gosh. Did you turn into one of those ladies that looked like a Fosse dancer too? Like, did you then show up to those auditions? Like, no. Oh. No, I, I don't think I, I couldn't, I didn't, I could not get into a chorus of Bob Fosse, but um, I did get to play for Strada in Pippin in the, oh. in the first, in the first national tour. And he, Bob was the, he was the director. Um, and I, I knew I was the right person for that job. It was also a funny kind of lovely circumstances that I was in some off broad an off Broadway show that had started as an off 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 blah, 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 that moved to an off Broadway theater. I got some excellent reviews and I think the day the review came out was the day I had my audition for Bob Fosse. Timing. So I timing. and I played it. I, I had talked to people who knew him. I talked to you know I I knew that I I don't know. I just I had done some work and I just, I don't know, the right person at the right time. I, somebody, uh, he needed, a, that part required a good dancer who could, uh, I don't know how I got the part. I just. <laughs> strong. Is it, I'm kind of getting the impression that you're talking about being a strong dancer. Well, a strong dancer and also being able to being able to talk and sing yeah. was really the key. Um, I'm not sure that I, certainly as a young person, I, I, I didn't do nearly as much comedy as I did when I got a little older. But um, and also there were a lot of divisions. You sort of either did musicals or you did straight plays, mm. and it was hard to get into an audition even for a straight play. And but the truth know. is. I think that a lot of us who thought we were better than we were, as you get better, you see, maybe I really wasn't a very strong actor. Right. Yet. But there's something about that. What I'm noticing and what you're talking about is like, there's something about the confidence that you had by maybe thinking that you might've been a little better than you were that actually behooves young actors and performers that, you know, cause when Gina and I talked to these people we're like, Oh my God, they have a healthy ego, which actually helps them to not give up as where I was like, I'm terrible. I'm giving up at the first out. Uh, exactly. You, you, right. 
Right. And and it and it goes back and forth. It's like a seesaw. One day you feel like, oh yeah, I'm good at this. I can walk it. I, I'm I'm okay with this. Um, and the next day you just want to hide under the bed. I, I think that's sort of the way it goes. Um, I, I didn't know that people who worked on Broadway, even then, all had coaches and teachers and support systems and, you know, being kind of a little more of a lone wolf, which I was and still fight against in a way. Um, I come against that a lot for whatever reasons, you know, whatever. It doesn't work. What, to be a lone wolf? Yeah. Yeah. You can't do this alone. You you mm -hmm. can't do it without a support system. You, 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 this is just too hard. Um, um, because when I actually had the best opportunity I had, which was being part of a chorus line, um, it was harder than I thought to just be normal, come up with a good performance every night, you know, it was up and down and loaded and you lost your voice and had nobody to talk to because you couldn't talk anyway. And we didn't have the internet yet. You know, there was so many, it was so much pressure and so much, um, and I hadn't really figured out how to create that support system up for myself. It was harder, harder than it needed to be. Did you ultimately find it with the cast? No. Uh, oh. oh, not really. Um, Were they mean? Oh, no, no, the cast was fine. It wasn't that anybody was mean. It's that I didn't take care of myself, and I didn't know mm -hmm. how I was supposed to take care of myself. Sure. How old were you when you were cast in the chorus line? 27, maybe. Okay. I was, I was young, and but I wasn't that young. I just, but it wasn't that, see, it was, it was a strange situation, too. I was... I had already had one Broadway show, so I had done, and then I had gone out of town to Bucks County Playhouse and did West Side Story, Romeo. What was your first Broadway show? I'm sorry. It was called Minnie's Boys. Oh, that was it. That you was my, Minnie's Boys. I Great. did. Okay. And it was a okay. show about the Marx Brothers. Right. And I don't know if you know who Louis, you probably do, Louis Stadlin, Louis J. Stadlin, who works with, um, he works with Nathan Lane a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's like second banana. And he's incredibly talented. He yeah. played Groucho. Okay. We were all 25 years old. We were kids. We were right out of college. And the weirdest part of all was that the mother was played by Shelley Winters. And this was a musical. <laughs> wow. What a weird... You Okay. So then you went on to Chorus Line. Well, then, just... well then in between that, this is like, you know, then, then I, I went out of town to Bucks County. I loved being in Bucks County for a year. We did West Side Story. We did Romeo and Juliet during the week. We do them together. One in the morning, one in the afternoon for oh. high school kids. And then on the weekends we do one of the, and I was the only person in the cast who liked dancing at 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, I didn't mind doing West Side at 10 in the morning. I'd been up at eight being a demonstrator for Mary Hinkson, teaching people how to do a contraction. So I didn't care. Um, I love working in the daytime. That's why Play With Your Food is such a nice success. My lunchtime theater series. I get tired at night. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Most people do. Wait. So was the was the uh, audition process for Chorus Line arduous? I have a great story. I can tell you what my story is. Okay. So yeah. I I was in. I don't know what I was doing. 
I had done a, a lot of off-Broadway work. I had been doing, I had been working a lot. And then, of course, there were the year where I didn't work. And then I went off to South North Carolina and played Nellie Forbush in South Pacific in the dinner theater for three months. And I loved that, actually. I think it was one of those times I had a job and a boyfriend. And it was like a relief. It was wonderful to have like a life and then do the show at night. You know, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and I didn't, you know, it was a big part. And I didn't panic about singing. You know, it was just, I learned a lot from doing a part like that. Um, I was doing Fiddler on the Roof at a dinner theater in New Jersey, down the street from where my folks lived. And occasionally my mom would stop by at rehearsal and watch the wedding scene. Honest to God, I'm not kidding. She's like, Carol, are you ever going to get married? Are you ever going to? Okay. So I'm doing Fiddler on the Roof in New Jersey. And um, there's a guy in the cast, one of the bottle dancers, who were dropping yeah. off at night on 55th Street because he's working on this little musical about dancers. And he would bring in monologues and he'd ask me to read them at rehearsal because he wanted to hear them out loud. And there was some stuff about this place. Did you ever hear the Peppermint Lounge back in the city? Yeah. Right. It was a disco thing. But it was also a place where there was something. I remember one, the couch girls, girls who would just lie on the couches and the guys would like, <laughs> I mean, really crazy stuff that did not make it into the show, but some interesting stuff. And I was playing the eldest daughter title. And it's a terrific part for me. So I was good. Yeah. And Nick knew I was a dancer. Anyway, this little show called The Chorus Line was in its workshop, second workshop. They had already done the, because I, I was not a Michael Bennett dancer. I didn't, you know, I, I, I had auditioned for Michael once for the tour of Two for the Seesaw. And it was the leading part and I didn't get it. I auditioned, I sang and I read and I read and I sang and I didn't get the part. And I came home and I was like in hysterics for like five days. I just, you know, I, it, I didn't get the part. A year and a half later, I'm doing Fiddler on the Roof with Nick Dante in New Jersey, and somebody leaves the second workshop, and Nick brings up my name because there's a job all of a sudden to cover, to be in the opening and to cover a couple of parts. Nick's bring up my name, and Michael Bennett says, wait a minute, I know her. I know she's an actress, and she's a singer. Can she dance? So I showed up the next morning and I danced for 10 minutes and I got the job. I mean, I think. Wow. Had, yeah. That's a great story. And in this, no, so that means you didn't have to participate in callbacks or? Nothing. Oh. I started that day. I mean, honestly, it was. Did you leave Fiddler on the Roof? I, you know what? I don't remember oh. whether how it went because we were yeah, already yeah. in performance. Sure. Or something, you know, I, 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 it's a long time ago, so I don't yeah, yeah. really remember, but I know that this particular story is the absolute truth. That's fantastic. That was it a hit right away, Corsland? Well, it wasn't, we were in previews. I mean, no, we weren't even previews, the second workshop, which means it was yeah. still being figured out. Um, and when I came to the first rehearsal and sat and watched what was going on, I, I could not believe what I was seeing Why? because the truth of what was happening on stage and the way it was being built was astounding. It was absolutely astounding because something about it was so bizarre. Oh, and also 
also Marvin Hamlish was the rehearsal pianist on Minnie's Boys. Wow. So I knew him a little bit, not well, you know, but he was the rehearsal pianist that nobody would listen to. A show about the Marx Brothers. Marvin would say, wait, this is the Marx Brothers. You got to have a naked girl running out of the orchestra pit. You got to, you got to, and of course, nobody would listen to him. Wait a minute, I'm just turning this off. Hello, stop, stop. Phone, turn off. Hey. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I couldn't get over what I was seeing. And I, I knew from the beginning, of course, I think most of us did, that something very, very unique was going on. And um, it was always changing. Like Donna McKechnie came in late at the audition, all dressed up in like a fur thing. And it was like, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm sorry, I'm late. And then Zach says, well, would you put on dance clothes? And she said, no, no, wait. Anyway. You couldn't help but know, sort of. You, you just kind of couldn't Well, help. I mean, the, I remember seeing it when I was a kid and not not being able to relate yet as an actor, but now that I think back, it just must have felt so gratifying to be seen for all of the, you know, because like we, we the Joe Montaigne episode, we... we um, Which I haven't listened to yet, but I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it aired today, but um, he was saying... Oh, I love him. Yeah, for you. he was saying that when he won the Tony and everybody would say, well, it's like to win the Tony. What's it like? And he said, it's like uh, you won the lottery, but you've been buying tickets for 15 years. Wow. You know, so that's the part of acting that people now, I think it's a pretty common knowledge that it's really difficult to be an actor. But I don't know how. Hmm. How known that was then. And it just must have been so gratifying for all of those people. I mean, who were living in their real life, the story of that musical. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. And, and also, I mean, it really did come out of people's experiences. Those stories are so, so to be part of something like that and down at the public theater, which of course it was the place to be. You know, you, you knew that Meryl Streep was walking down the hallway and you knew that, I mean, talk about confidence. I mean, I don't know if you've read her new book. No. Or the book about her. No. But it's worth the time. I listened to it, actually. I didn't read it. I, I listened. It's quite wonderful because you see a very confident person who's working on creating who she is. You feel, I feel like you have a really strong sense of confidence about yourself, too. Where did that come from? Would you agree, first of all, that you have... It sounds like... You had some comp, some real chutzpah as a, kid, as a youngster, and I maybe now as well. Where'd that come from? Huh, beats me. Um, I have it now because I, I've, I, I've had a lot of a lot of experience, and I, I think that that I, I think I know a lot about this. Um, but I don't know that I had it. The, the trick was to have this kind of confidence when it really matters. Yes. And, and I think I had it, like if I was in an off-Broadway show, I could say, I don't think we, that's good enough. Could you restage this, blah, blah, blah. Or if I'm in North Carolina, I'm not, I think we need to da, 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 da. But when it comes down to the real nitty gritty of standing up for yourself when it really, really matters, boy, that's harder than it looks. You know, um, 
uh, even things like, I mean, my character, when I eventually took over the role of Morales, which I under, you know, I was, we covered all these parts. There were nine of us. We sang in a little booth in the wings. We had microphones and little headsets. And the coolest part of all was Jerry Schoenfeld, who was the chairman of the Schubert organization, would bring any visiting dignitary who was visiting the city that he was showing around his theaters. He would bring them into our little booth. And then we would watch the show from stage left in our little booth while we're singing, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball, you know, because half the dancers on the stage could stop singing because they had a solo coming up. So, you know, singing in a musical is not easy. No, no. <laughs> no there's a lot of pressure and you got to hit high notes and, you, you know, you just wake up in the middle of the night going, ah, it's torture. Torture. <laughs> and you have to work through that and finally go, fuck it, you know. Uh, fuck it, I don't care what I weigh. Fuck it, I don't care if I, I if I can't hit the high note. But it it takes a long time to get there. I, you know, I see people who do this all the time. I don't know how they live. I don't know how they sleep at night. So, uh, no, no wonder people like to hire singers who have graduated from programs where they really understand their voice, know how to protect that. Um, which you don't, you know, you have to learn, you have to learn how to really take, that's why, you know, it's wonderful about ballet companies now have masseuses and we didn't have any of that. You were hanging out there alone, I mm. felt. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I felt. Yeah. And if I was vulnerable or if I didn't feel well, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I can't tell anybody. I can't be, I can't be vulnerable. I can't be, they'll think less of me. They think I can't play the part. So it was hard. <laughs> I mean, I've heard you say a, a lot in this conversation about being a lone wolf, being in a family, having support, not having support. And actually, because I know you, uh, you know, in a, in a different context, I know you through the workshop. The story that you always tell about the workshop is that you were on outside of the building while they were having a Christmas party and you're looking in the window and you describe yourself being a little puppy like you want to you want it in and how I always interpreted that is you just wanted to be part of it you just wanted to be part of that group and yes. that sounds like I'm not sure if that's the thing that has always drawn you to this or mm. if, or if or if wanting that and not getting it like you didn't get it in chorus line if that's been a big impediment in your career? Like, how do you see yourself in terms of being a lone wolf, being supported, being part of a group, not being part of a group? Interesting. Thank you for, for asking this. I think about this a lot. I, I don't like, I, I'm, first of all, astounded that I was able to have a work on Broadway and have that, and then actually got to get married and have a family. I find that incredibly fabulous, that that was something I was able to accomplish, because um, I, 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 and, and I think as I've gotten older and a little less frightened of whatever life, um, I've discovered that it's not so great to be a lone wolf. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really work so much for me. Granted, if I want to, I work on a lot enough alone because, you know, all of us, when we produce theater, we do a lot of work alone, even though we're, we're group animals. Um, it, it doesn't, it didn't work. It didn't work. Um, when it comes right down, I mean, I, for whatever the reason I had to do it that way, 
And I had some really good friends. I mean, God knows we'd sit in coffee shops and talk about acting until, Jesus, God. <laughs> I don't know how much you can talk about this, but that's all we did. And then there were bars downtown. There was the Haymarket and the uh, Charlie's and Joe Allen's. And, you know, it was always fun to sit around with actors and talk about acting. And I loved that. But I somehow wasn't able to incorporate my real life with my work. It took me a longer time to figure that one out. That's all. That's, yeah, that's that makes sense. It's true what you say about actors going on ad nauseum about acting. And I, <laughs> I, I loved remember, it. I still love it. I do too. I mean, I love it too. And I remember being in college and we had like a couple of friends in our close friend group who were not in the theater school. And I mean, they they're like how are you still talking about this this is all you talk about and we're like well why why wouldn't you find this the most fascinating thing in the world is is and i think it's because it's so closely linked to just who you are as a person so when you're talking about acting you're also talking about yourself and your understanding of yourself as it changes i think that that's right and also we love i love the writers i have always loved the plays even before I learned anything about how to be a good actor or how to be a, an honest actor, or really using, coming from myself, coming from a truthful place. Um, when I used to go into New York and take Luigi dance classes in high school, because I grew up in New Jersey and we were an hour away from the city, I could hop on the bus and come in and take a class. I would um, stop at, there were bookstores all over Times Square. And I would come in and I would pull out you know, 31 act plays. And I'd sit on the play, on the floor and read the short plays. Cause I, I love to read them. I love the plays and I love the dancing. That was what I was good at. And it took me a lot longer to, to um, learn how to take the play, but I always liked reading them. Maybe I'll say, though I like the short ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't remember. What did you do there? I have no, I have no idea what you asked me, but things are better now. It's yeah, no, I, I don't know. no, the thing um, I was going to ask you next is um, you mentioned being on a national tour. Mm -hmm. What is that like? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it was the first national tour of Pippin. We were in Boston for three months. We were in Chicago for five weeks. We were in Detroit for. Um, what was it like? I loved being at the theater. I loved doing the show. I loved doing my part. Um, because it was a real dance role and I, and, and Fosse's a good director. He very clear. Um, at one point the character has to talk about her. She, Pippin is her stepson. She's Pippin's wicked stepmother, but she also has another son that she wants to push on Charlemagne to make him the king. And he would just say, you know, sell Lewis. Do, you know, he at the simplest direction. It was so helpful. I started to under, you know understand what a director, good director. You know, just, but um, uh, um, how was it? It, it was fun sometimes. Uh, being on the road is a little strange. But what I liked the most, believe it or not, there was the five weeks in Detroit. Why? We, Why we, Detroit? Why? We all lived at the same Howard Johnson. There was a pool. It was freezing. 
So you didn't went, go out almost ever, except to the Saks Fifth Avenue, which was a block away in the other direction. The theater was in one direction and the other was the other, the other direction. And for me, that was the most fun. Somehow the cast was pulled together. We were, I didn't love it when we were in cities. You know, you could find a dance class. You got, I kind of wouldn't know what to do with myself in the daytime as much. Mm. Being on the road is a little, a little strange for me. Um, it's how fun. long, how long was that Pippin tour? It was a year. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it was a year. San Francisco, it was a long year. It was a long year. And you know, actually, the real truth, if we're going to talk about the real truth here, why not? Um, I had had a year of therapy before, and then I'm out on the road for an entire year. And there's nothing that tells you about your life like being on the road. Mm. You have your cat, maybe. I don't even remember if I had a cat. But that's what you've got. Whatever you have with you is what you have. And for some reason, it had a huge effect on me because when I came home, I got a phone call from this fella that I had met right before I left. And I was all full of attitude. I was in an off-Broadway show. I was, I was the main character. I, got, I, I somehow managed to get some good reviews. I met this guy and he said, you know, hi, how about I give you a call? I said, I'm sorry, I'm going on the road in a week and I'm working with Bob Fosse and why don't you call me when I get home? Well, when I got home, I was a very different person, actually, after a year on the road. And we went out, and I think we got engaged three weeks later. I mean, I, I, wow. I was a very, and that was me that had changed. It was just that it, show business was lovely, but I got the message that it was a job, not a family. I got it on some level that I could understand it, and I was able to make a, you know, I mean, all of this is like real stuff. This is exactly what happened to me. I don't know if it happens to other people, but this is what happened to me. Is that the person that you married and had married children to. with? Yeah. We were married okay. for like 20 some odd years. So, and we're still friends. And would you say looking <laughs> back, crazy? the thing that you were most in I love with? I liked him. I mean, yeah. Well, or that you were also really in love. I mean, you were, you were really craving to have connection with another person. It sounds like you're really craving to have a reliable connection with another person. Cause that's the other thing is theater. So transient. I mean, yeah. I don't know if the past change at all on the um, tours, but you know, everybody tells the same experience. You get in a show, you say, I love you so much. We are going to be best friends forever. I, and then you never mm -hmm. ever speak to them again, unless you right. do another show together. Isn't that awful? Yeah. It's I mean, really sometimes hard. We you gather a friend or two and that's always wonderful. But if, yeah, exactly. It's like exactly. so and intense for such a, sh for a period of time. And it, and it's interesting because it sort of recreates this instant uh, close family and then you're just done. And then I, I haven't thought about that in a long time because I don't do theater really anymore, but it, then it's over and then you're alone. And all, your, fa and all your family trauma comes, right. comes <laughs> all your family right. shit comes right to the surface. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And even the, you know, with a show like my experience, well, no, I mean, yes, we were a close company, but it was the year. It was the, somehow the year. It was a yeah. whole year and and I, I think I was enjoying it but I wasn't really happy yeah and it's hard to admit that 
especially when you're doing something you've been preparing for your right. entire life for God's I mean, sake. I feel I feel like that's a, a common thing that I notice with actors as well is when we arrive and are supposed to be doing the thing that's supposed to make us happier than anything in the world, whether it's landing a lead or on a television show and it doesn't quite work. Like it's not giving you what you thought. There's like a grieving process and a realization <sighs> that like, Oh wait, I need something else. This isn't enough for me. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. And our conservatory training a lot of time teaches us that like that should be all we that's just it like that's the goal and then you realize wait what if I want a different goal and I think it's really hard you know because without the dedication you might not have landed on Broadway in a national tour but absolutely time, not it doesn't mean that it's enough it's so interesting it's like you have to pretend that's all you want because you want to make it and then once you've got the thing that that you want and it's not enough there's a whole different process that happens thank gosh you said yes to going on a date with him because <laughs> you might not have that's exactly right that's exactly right um and we were kind of in the same place because he went to work for somebody at nbc and so we were both like totally up to our ears in work and then all of a sudden we turned around and went wait a minute here something's wrong with this, is this, is this picture? So, and you sort of rely on theater as the place to go for everything you need because we yeah. loved it so. Um, I still sometimes read theater books. I read books about Balanchine. If I'm, you know, over the pandemic, I, you know, who reads books about the Diaghilev Russian dance company? But for some reason I found them. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, so did you completely leave the acting no. and performing okay you, no but we did go family well we got we 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 actually went to la for a couple of years right after like maybe six months after we got married we just sort of went want to get out of here yeah let's get out of here so we went to la just the, the you know and found uh um you know there's there's work in la for theater but it's like the stepchild you know right um, there was a, a SAG strike and I was doing working, the show working and a oh, million yeah. people. Yeah, we had a nice group. You know, the theater is fun. It's not like it's successful, but it's fun in California. <laughs> so a lot of us got agents and stuff from doing that. Um, I, I got on a little TV show for a couple of weeks and then it was canceled. It was kind of a running joke of, so I mean, I worked. I think I sort of also saw that I needed a better acting teacher. And that's when I found John Lenn. Um, and I went to that class Monday nights, of course, I, I think I've spent every Monday night of my life at some theater thing. I wouldn't know what to do if we didn't have the workshop to tell you the truth. I, I would not know what to do on a Monday night. Um, so I, I, I found a class. So that was also helpful and worked on acting again. It was a, re this has been a lifetime pursuit for me, learning how to be a better actor. I find it absolutely fascinating. I, I really do. So, so you feel like you're still, you're still actively engaged in the process of wanting to be a better yeah, actor. Totally. Do you have, do you have more big, big goals or dreams? I have no idea. Want? You know, the, 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 the shift, I mean, I was able to keep working, even having kids. We stayed in the city for a long time and I worked less, but I did work. I did one summer tour of Chorus Line. I took my son, Max, who was one, 
I had to prove to myself I could be an actress and a mother. Um, I don't think I got much sleep that summer. Um, but it was, it's all, and, and then, I mean, as they got older and then we moved up to Connecticut and then I was still getting some jobs. I think I did a show called Theta Barra and the Frontier Rabbi, which was really fun because that Vivian Madelon directed it and he's a good director. I don't know. You know, I just took jobs when they came along and we worked it out. You know, you got a babysitter who you didn't even know their last name. <laughs> it was tricky. But we moved up Connecticut and the best thing that I was able to find for myself was I was rereading some of my old books and I found this book by Agnes DeMille called Dance to the Piper. And I thought, oh, these are stage-worthy stories. And I wrote myself and performed a one-woman play about Agnes DeMille which was using my dance and love of dance. And I took three stories. I took the story of her getting to do Rodeo and then getting to do Oklahoma and then Carousel and then having a life, you know, resolving. So I took five years out of her life. And I did that for six years. I did it at Oh, wow. That's a, theaters. Long, run. That's a long run. Well, I worked at it on the, at the workshop, 20 minutes at a time. Um, did it at Fairfield University for the first time with a live piano player and, you know, and, and adding dance because it was a piece. Um, I went to theaters all over the East Coast, you know, little theaters that hired me for two days or three days. Went to the National Portrait Gallery. That was a blast. And then I really did it at women's clubs, but it was something to focus on, something to work on, something to make better. It's great to have something, something. It doesn't matter what it is to be engaged in, I think. Um, so that was really helpful to come out of the city and feel more creative. So and that, what, tell, tell me about, I'm curious about your, um, your lunchtime plays. What's going on there? I'm getting, yeah, they're, they're, okay. So um, eventually Agnes DeMille's son took the rights back from me. Some other guy talked him into blah, blah, blah. So I, the six, it ended, you know, and it took me a while to put down the website and I, I could not let go. I was a royal pain in the neck with him, but I finally just let it go. Um, and then I had joined a committee, a cultural arts committee in junior high school, whatever the kids were in. And I was sitting there with my friend Nancy Diamond, and, and the committee started to get taken over by MBAs who didn't have jobs. So we were sitting in the back row being bad kids going, we got to get out of this committee and go do something. What can we do? So we thought, what do we like? Well, we like theater and we like food. So we thought, gee, if we started to do a lunchtime theater thing, do you think anybody would come? And we invited our friends to the first one and we found some one act plays and we did a little whatever we did for lunch and people liked it and um, it became a real thing. So I got to use my love of plays. I, I searched for wonderful one act plays. And we were, we, we, and then we started in Westport, then we added Fairfield, then we added Stanford and that ended because they changed the building around. Then we went to Greenwich. So I'm st still doing this 15 years later. Plus, and I've written a book about stage readings, which is, I think, amazing that Smith and Krause published my book about uh, three years ago. It's called Staged Reading Magic. And it's everything we learned about from about stage readings that play with your food. And it's, it's not that it's so great for professionals although it's good for young professionals because it's all about doing what people tell you you can't do or you shouldn't do. 
Um, but it's fabulous for people, for community theaters and anybody who wants to get a group together and put on something. That's cool. Because the truth of the, see, it's all, uh, yes. And, and, and uh, uh, the fact that well, I'm going to show it to you. <laughs> Hold on. Well, I don't have to show it to you now. I'll, 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 I'll get you copies of it or something, but oh. it's a nice little small book, you know, and it's, it's Smith and Krause is a huge, fabulous publisher. And I, I sold it. it. I love it. I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, check it out. You sold it to where? I, well, I mean, I sold it to them and I sold it without an agent. Oh, wow. I did, it's, it's all about everything they tell you you can't do. Sure. Um, people did give me people to contact and I would, and they all sort of turned me down or they were whatever, one, one or two. And it was a summer thing where I got more and more focused on what I was trying to communicate with this book and how I was trying to say it, that by the end of the summer, and I, and I wrote to Eric Krauss, I was so clear on what I was trying to do that he bought the book. Wow. That is a very good um, in, inspirational story because we, talk, we do talk a lot about you just have to make your own stuff and you have to forge your own path. And maybe for some people, doing it the way somebody else did it works, but mostly people have to figure it out on their own, make it fresh each time. I think that that's exactly right. And it's really about figuring it out how there's always another door. Mm. You know, you can't, I, I, I used to like, I, sometimes I think I enjoyed getting an audition more than I actually liked getting the job. I feel the exact same way. Really? Yes. How am I going to get into that room? Who am I going to call that? No, who am I going to run into at an open call? And I went to open calls when I was older, like in my 40s, because I would know the stage manager. I had no problem going to an open call if there was a part that I somehow couldn't, you know, because you know, I usually have an agent somewhere because I sometimes get jobs. But it's the it's the negotiating. How am I gonna? I love that part of it. Isn't that weird? It's the art of the deal. It's the art of the deal. Also, like um, for me, yeah. that's something about the research and forensics and um, yes. and getting in there and um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, that's what it is. Fun. It's fun. It's and it's challenging all, and fun. It should be fun. I mean, that's kind of you know right. Like it's a play. There, I used to one of our teachers used to say it's called a play. For a reason. Not a work. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that, but that's right. That's right. And, and, and that's part of what the book is about too, because, you know, a million people do stage readings. You put up music stands, you put bottles of water next to the chair. That's it. But if you're doing 10 of them, you can't do that. Right. So the whole right. purpose, the whole thing about the book is figuring out what each play might you need. Mix and it up the best way to do each play. And it's all about thinking it through mm -hmm. and thinking what, what table would say suburban living room? How would you put yeah. two, two um, noble people, people who are, uh, you know, yeah, aristocrats, status. how would you make them feel like they were going to the gallows? Well, you put them on low stools. Right. Um, and also we have wonderful actors up here. Yeah. You know, so I was able to really tap into, which is why I admire the workshop is because I met so many good actors. Mm -hmm. You know, Brett Summers was hilarious. Mm -hmm. 
and and Fred's Fred Stroppel as a playwright was hilarious. So we had a lot of so the, that that amazingly is still going on. I love this. So yeah, good. Well, this has been awesome, Carol. Thank <laughs> Carol, you thank so you. much for your time. Well, thank you for letting me talk about this. You know, it it um I feel like there's another book in your future. I just have to say. Me too. And what would that book be about? Be, I don't know, but there's something about Carol's life in the theater and like what you've learned and how Maybe you, it could be about this issue of Lone Wolf and yeah. and, and and you know, uh, I don't know much has been written about the, the idea of how mm. the actor needs to actively engage with a community. Oh, it's everything. That was one of the things about Michael Howard as a teacher. I mean, he would have a Christmas party every year and he would say, you know, some people are working, they'll just come for the party and some people are cooking the turkey. You felt like, you know, the same way like Albert Haig, who was a wonderful teacher as a composer. And you might know him because he plays Sh Professor Shirovsky. This is the last story I'll tell you on Fame, the movie uh -huh. and the TV show. Uh -huh. But he was never an actor. He was a composer. And he knew from sitting on the other side of the table how you could get somebody's attention and get a job. Wow. And he taught a class. Boy, that was the best class I ever taught. took because he taught you how to get a friggin' job. Yep. How to take what you do and put it in the window, like an expensive dress store. They don't have 20 dresses, they have one. Right, right. And it's all about putting it back in your own lap, putting mm -hmm. it back, right. what do you have to contribute? Ownership, yeah. What do you contribute? If I cast you, what are you gonna bring to this party? Right. Why should we hire you? You have to answer that question. You have to know who wrote the song you're wow. singing at this audition. You have to know who wrote the play. You have to know what key you sing it. And you have to, all of this is because you're a responsible, and, and they teach this now in college. But I, I found him younger, and he would teach you somehow how to take a song and actually ruin it so that all of a sudden somebody's got your, you've got somebody's attention. <laughs> and then they'll say, wait a minute, what are you doing to that song? Could you sing it normal? And then if you're good, You've not only done well, but you've gotten somebody's attention and set yourself aside from the pack. I don't know. I have, a, I have an ability. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.